Some things really demand a response. If someone walks up to you and invites you to something, you really have no choice but to respond. Now, you can, you can be rude. <laughs> you can be silent. You can make an excuse. You can say, let me check my calendar. You can say, hey, I'd love to. I mean, there's all kinds of ways to respond to something, but some things just demand a response. A number of years ago, there was a, a group of about 200 business people gathered in Morocco, North Africa, on the Mediterranean. To the Americans, it was a very exotic and unusual, even somewhat fearful place to go because it's not well understood. But to the European group, it didn't seem odd at all, particularly the French, because they have a historical colonial relationship with Morocco. And so for a French person to vacation in Morocco is somewhat like us flying uh, to a resort in Mexico. It's not that exotic, really. It's a two and a half hour flight from Paris to Casablanca. And then the group all went into the interior of the country to a resort in a city called Warzazat, which interestingly was, uh, how many of you know the movie Gladiator? You familiar with Gladiator? There's a scene where the general is captured and they force him to fight in Arabia. That movie set was in Warzazat, Morocco. So that's where the, and the set had been built and was there at the time. So there was a business meeting and there was an excursion into the desert. And in the course of the meeting, an announcement was made that a particular individual that had formerly managed uh, a group was going to take a new position supporting this group once again. And they decided it was time to engage in an initiation rite for this particular individual. So this individual was lured out by the pool on the last night. It's a high desert plain, and if you've ever been in the high desert at night, you know it can get very cold, right? It is very, very cold. And there was a sheet of thin ice floating on the swimming pool. An intense conversation ensued so as to distract this individual from what was about to happen. And then I looked up and I saw four burly guys around me in a semicircle. One of them was Manny Cervantes. Many of you know Manny, right? Manny was there. Uh, a guy named Todd Johnson. Some of you may know Todd. He lived here for many years. And I realized I was about to go in the water. I was given two choices. You can either be thrown in or we'll all jump in together. And the situation absolutely demanded a response. I mean, I could try to ignore it. I could try to wait them out. I could try to fight, but I was convinced somebody was going to get hurt. So I quickly surmised the thing to do was we're all jumping in together. So we, are there any delicate ears in the room? We stripped down to our skivvies and we counted to three and we jumped in. It gave a whole new meaning to the, the phrase skating on thin ice because now I know what's on the other side of the ice. <laughs> all I could think of was how do I get out of this water? It was like countless needles pricking every, every bit of the surface area of my skin. Uh, it was excruciating and exquisite all at the same time and very exhilarating. It reminds me that we have interesting ways of describing life. Listen to this. She said yes, and he was walking on air. And when I say that, you get, it was probably, it was a marriage proposal and she accepted and he was elated, but it's just a wonderful poetic way of saying it. How about this one? He was so on edge that everyone around him was walking on eggshells. It really communicates what's going on well, doesn't it? Eggshells are fragile, and it's like one misstep, and, and, and a storm will be unleashed. 
if you do something wrong. So you can try and tiptoe around this individual so that they don't explode. And you can try tiptoeing through life to try and avoid storms, but the storms are going to come. It doesn't matter what you do. Now, some are self-inflicted. Others come unexpectedly, and sometimes we're even sent unknowingly into a storm. And so as we look at our story for this morning, there's a lot of all of that going on. There's interesting responses that take place to what happens. So if you have your Bibles, uh, the text will also be on the screen. We're looking at Matthew chapter 14, and we'll start with verse 22 and read through the end of the chapter. I'm going to pray and ask for God's help because I need it. Father, as we read the text this morning, I'm so aware that uh, my desperate need to try and change people and change me and, and, and have influence through the opportunity to preach this morning, your word is futile. It is your Holy Spirit that enables us to grasp the truth. It is your Holy Spirit that convicts us of truth and sin and righteousness. So we ask you, God, by the power of your spirit to open the word to us, to open our minds and hearts to the meaning of this story as we consider it together. We ask it in your mighty, beautiful, holy name. Amen. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Now, bear in mind, this was right after the feeding of the 5,000 that Jim preached about last week. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, which would be somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m., he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But Jesus, immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of the place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. At the beginning of this story, there's this immediate sending. I find it curious that the writer felt compelled to note that he immediately did something. He sent the disciples across the lake. John records they were going to Capernaum, which was Jesus' hometown. It's on the northwestern region of, of the Sea of Galilee in that area. And then he sends the people away, and then he goes up on the hillside to pray. And Jesus was known to go and pray alone a lot. 
He's often used as an example of what the fact that we should pray, and we really only know the content of a couple of his prayers. One was the high priestly prayer in John 17. He prayed for unity. He prayed for sanctification, and he prayed for joy for the disciples that he had known and for those who would believe because of what they then did. So by extension, Jesus has prayed for us during his earthly ministry, for our unity, our sanctification, and our joy. And when you have some insight into his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane before his trial, and of course we know the Lord's Prayer where he instructed us to pray. We don't know what he was praying about on the mountain, but we know that Jesus prayed. There's a timeline in the story here. We know that he immediately sent them out. And Jesus sends people. He sends for all kinds of different reasons. And they're all related to advancing his kingdom. But Jesus is purposeful. He's never rushed. And he sees what's about to happen. Here's a few examples of sending related to advancing the kingdom. In Luke 5, he sends the leper that he had just healed to show himself to the priest to honor the law of Moses. In that same chapter, he sends the paralytic that he had just healed home to be with his family. In Luke chapter 10, he sends out the 72, two by two, and they come back rejoicing that even the demons are subject to them. But Jesus sends them to proclaim the coming of the kingdom. In Matthew 19, he sent the rich young ruler away, sad. I really thought about this for a while. I mean, sometimes we can be so desperate that someone come to faith that we want to negotiate. You know, Jesus didn't say, hey, it's okay, just sell half your stuff and then everything will be good, right? Jesus didn't beg him. Jesus let him walk away sad. Why? Because Jesus wanted to demonstrate that there is a cost to following him. As we've said from this pulpit before, you can't earn salvation. It is by the grace of God through faith that we're saved, not of ourselves so that we can't boast. But salvation is a free gift that costs you everything. Jesus makes that clear over and over, that obedience is expected, that love and obedience are equated when it comes to following Jesus. In Matthew chapter 21, he sends the disciples ahead of him to find the donkey that he'll ride in the triumphal entry and to find the upper room where they'll share the Last Supper, the Passover meal, before he dies. He sends them to make preparation. In John 11, the messengers who have come from John the Baptist asking Jesus, is it you or should we look for another? He sends them back to John and validates his identity. And finally in John 13, he sends Judas to betray him. Seriously? He sends Judas. Knowing what Judas is about to do, and he does it to accomplish his mission, Jesus sends people for many reasons, and they're all related to advancing his kingdom. Now, there are two very significant sins for us to reflect on this morning, to think about, and this is something we should think about every day. The first one is documented in Matthew chapter 28, just before Jesus ascends. We all know this one, right? It's, it's the great commission to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And we have this sign on the wall here. It's go, gather, grow, and then we have the three on the right. And so anytime you see something on a wall somewhere, you realize that it's significant to the people that put it on the wall. So we consider this great commission, this go, to be very significant for us. We are commanded to go. Now, we go in lots of different ways. Um, sometimes we go on mission trips. 
We go to Nicaragua and Uganda to deliver medical care. We go to Mexico for a whole variety of things that are done there. Um, we support missionaries in Ethiopia and Papua New Guinea and Ghana who are proclaiming the gospel and winning unreached people groups. We go to various places in the United States. We support people who are working with the navigators. We support people who are working with uh, an organization called STUMO, Student Mobilization. And you all need to know that, that, that part of the giving that goes on in this church goes to support people that are going uh, out to proclaim the gospel. And there's a tremendous amount that even goes on right here in Stillwater as a witness to the world that the kingdom of God is advancing and that we're his people. Go is very significant, and we are sent. The second one is this. It was promised in John 14, and it was delivered in Acts 2. Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. He said to his disciples, it's better for, me that, for you that I go away, because then I will send the counselor, the comforter. The Holy Spirit is very significant. In Matthew 28, he says, I'll be with you always. Well, how, how does that happen? It happens because he sends the Holy Spirit this mysterious thing that lives in us, the presence of God that gives us the mind of Christ. And the role of the Spirit on our lives leads us into all truth, conforms us into the image of Jesus, helps us to bear fruit as described in Galatians 5, empowers us for the work of the kingdom, gives life to our mortal bodies, comforts us in affliction, convicts us of and gives us power over sin, and gives us joy that translates into strength for what he calls us to do. Jesus made it very clear that apart from him, we can do nothing of lasting significance in the kingdom. Anything that we do that has true and real significance must be motivated by and informed by the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Paul wrote about it in 1 Corinthians, and he said that anyone who builds on a proper and good foundation, in the end, those things will survive judgment and we'll receive a reward for it. But if you're building, even as a believer, on a weak foundation, anything other than Jesus, as led by the Holy Spirit, it will be burned up. We'll still be saved, but it's as if we've lost all those things that we did. He sends us for many reasons, all of which are related to advancing his kingdom. But as we go, as I mentioned before, the circumstances are going to arise that are challenging. The storms are going to come, and you can try and tiptoe through life, but you can't avoid what's going to happen many times. It leaves us feeling powerless, discouraged when unexpected, surprising things happen. But Jesus is purposeful. He's never rushed, and he sees what's about to happen. And our responses to circumstances can range from disappointment to absolute devastation there are people close to me that are still experiencing long-term unemployment, um, people that have dealt with sickness, unmet expectations. We all experience that. You ever been disappointed by a spouse or a friend or a boss or a coworker or something you bought <laughs> or a vacation you took? I mean, we all have expectations that are unmet. And if those kind of storms wreck you, then we probably need to have a conversation and buck you up a little bit. On the other hand, sometimes it leads to absolutely broken relationships. And maybe the most difficult is untimely death. 
I have a few friends that have lost loved ones in an untimely way. I'm not talking about an elderly parent or grandparent, which in the normal course of life, we expect that life is going to end. That's, that's normal. I have personally, and some of you know this story, experienced two untimely deaths of people very close to me. At 19, I had a stepbrother who was making poor choices. He lived in Houston, and he did not survive the point of the knife. He was killed at 19. And it was tragic and very painful. There were people who believed and people who did not believe close to him. And the response in some ways was the same. You know, for, for everyone it was tragic and painful. Uh, it was somewhat devastating. But for his mother, who was not a believer, something in her just snapped. The idolatry of children completely broke her when the idol was destroyed. And she left her entire life behind. Everybody, everything. And became a different person. She couldn't cope. My dad, who did have the seeds of faith at the time, found his way through it. And his faith in the end was very much strengthened by it. I also had a young aunt in her mid-40s who had two children, my two cousins, and she worked at a car wash company in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And I'll never forget the call that I got because my mom was driving back home from Houston and she was en route when it happened, driving through the area, and she heard the news reports. There were five people who were shot to death. Mom heard the report on the radio, but she didn't really think much about it. So I drove to her home and waited for her to arrive so that I could give her the news that her youngest sister had been murdered. And it was difficult. It didn't matter whether you were a believer or not. It was a very painful thing for all of us. But the difference in response in her two children was stark. One was a believer and one was not. And so when an event like, happens like that, it's, it's the watershed. Remember Jim pouring the water a couple of weeks ago over the, over the watershed to sort of demonstrate Jesus creates this watershed divide between those who believe and those who don't. And those who don't respond in bitterness and brokenness and a, with a complete lack of hope when really difficult things happen. And those who have Jesus experience a lot of pain, but they see life fundamentally in a different way. My aunt was a believer, my stepbrother was not. So, believing makes all the difference. Faith defines how we frame the picture of the things that we see. It gives us the context to understand and make sense of life, even when things don't seem to make sense. When you would otherwise be so broken and devastated that you just can't cope. Jesus makes all the difference in those circumstances. Now there are some things that we are not supposed to be surprised by. And this one might surprise you a little bit. It's found in 1 Thessalonians 5. We're not going to project the, the text, but I want to read this to you. And as I, I looked for surprise and things that we should not be surprised by, I was surprised by this. 1 Thessalonians 5. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Well, we'll all be surprised when it happens, right? Because no one knows. While people are saying there is peace and security, 
Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Listen to this. But you are not in darkness, brothers and sisters, by implication, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Let me read that again. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. As believers, we're to not be surprised that the Lord can. Now, we, we may be surprised by the exact time. It could be tonight. But that he is coming should not be a surprise to us. We're to expect it and to prepare for it. And as the passage goes on, it tells us that we should live in light of the fact that he is coming. Now, judgment will come with him. There will be a storm for those who don't believe, but not for believers. We're to be prepared for that. The other two references to things that we shouldn't be surprised by are found in 1 Peter 4 and in 1 John. Where is it? Looking for my notes. Anyway, it's in 1 John. There we go, 1 John 3. And that is this, that as believers, we may face fiery trials. Peter was writing to believers who were facing violent persecution. And John, likewise, was writing to believers that faced the hatred of the world. Jesus said, if the world hated me, therefore it's going to hate you. Listen, when you stand up as a believer, like if you're a believer, people should, should know that about you somehow, right? If people don't know that you're a believer in Jesus, uh, something's probably wrong, right? Jesus said, let your light shine before men that it may be seen. Nobody hides that. Now, it doesn't mean be obnoxious and annoying about it, but be open about it. Like, as a believer, my life should have changed so that I have hope and joy in a way that others see and they can't deny. Something's, I've even been told, man, there's something wrong with you. Like, you're happy all the time. I'll never forget when I was a younger guy working at IBM, uh, this Vietnam vet who had a glass eye, this grizzled guy who had seen it all, he looked at me and said, something's wrong with you, man. <laughs> yeah, I, I've got Jesus. If that's wrong, then... You know, I don't want to be right. There's a song in there. Thank you. I thought that was kind of funny too. Um, so if loving Jesus is wrong, I won't be right. Uh, but there, there will, there's going to be a, a rub somewhere with the world. Now, for us in the United States, it might not be beheading or, or violent death, at least not right now. But there is a rub. There should be a rub in places where people don't know Jesus and they are living in spiritual darkness. If you can just blend in like a chameleon and nobody knows, I think you're probably living counter to scripture and counter to the commands of Christ. People should know. People should know that you're a believer. So don't be surprised when the rub happens. Now, responses to circumstances are going to vary, like I mentioned, based on, well, many different things worldview, personality, stage of life, but certainly faith and being a believer is a dividing line. And responses to Jesus vary tremendously throughout the New Testament. So responses will vary. Listen, in the, back to the story, nine hours had passed. I, I don't, it's not obvious unless you look at the timeline uh, in the three gospels where this story is described. Jesus sends them across the lake and then he dispatches the crowd and then he goes to pray. And by the time the third watch of the night comes, like I said before, it's between 3 and 6 a.m. So there's something like nine hours have transpired from when the disciples got into the boat to row across to the other side. Nine hours. Like, think about that. In John, he says they were, two, they were three or four miles out in the lake. 
Now, it, let's say it's three miles. Three miles in nine hours, that is slow, painful, struggling progress, if you can call it that. And the word storm is never actually used in this particular story, but it describes the storm. The wind is against them, and the waves are beating on the boat and slowing them down and making it difficult. Their first response to Jesus was utter terror. Like it was easier for them to believe in a superstitious apparition with malintent than to believe in what was actually happening right before their own eyes. And Jesus calms them down, and we'll come back to that in a second because it's very significant. The next response is Peter. Lord, if it's you, bid me come out to you in the water. Now, a lot of preachers will make this the central part of the story, right? Peter's faith and then his doubt, and then the lesson is, man, have faith because get, you can walk on the water if you have faith. You can do anything if you have faith. But if you doubt, wow, you're just going to be destroyed. You're going to be crushed. And they make it all about having faith in faith. And I'm not here to minimize the, the significance of the fact that Peter is bid by Jesus to come out on the water. It's miraculous. It does demonstrate a great faith that Peter has. And, and certainly, Peter took his eyes off of Jesus. He's looking around, and then he realizes, I can't do this. Uh, and he's afraid of drowning. So his, his terror turns from, it's a ghost, to, oh my gosh, I'm going to drown. And he cries out to Jesus, who, who reaches out and saves him. Now, there, there's a lesson in there for us. There's no doubt that, that faith is significant in our lives as believers. The Bible says God gives to each person a measure of faith. He's the one who determines the level of faith that we have. And we're called to come alongside and to cooperate and to live in line with and in submission to the commands of Christ, to align with the faith that he's given us and to believe. It is, it is a significant thing in the life of a believer. But the danger is that you can turn faith into something that well, I can do whatever I want as long as I'm claiming the name of Jesus. Peter was responding directly to Jesus' command. That's what he was given the faith to do, is to be obedient. So God will enable us to do the things he's calling us to do. I believe that is probably more likely the main lesson from my perspective and the perspective of the commentators I read. He'll empower us for the work of the kingdom. Now, there are two storm stories in the New Testament. Right? This is, in Matthew 8, there's a different story. I'm going to turn there really It's very short. So I want to look at Matthew 8 very quickly and just talk about the difference here. Starts in verse 23. When he, when he, Jesus, when he got into the boat. Okay, so there's the first difference. Jesus is in the boat with them when they leave the shore in this, in this Matthew 8 story. He's not coming to them on the water. He got into the boat and the disciples followed him into the boat. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. So Jesus is sleeping in the front of the boat, and the disciples are afraid. And, and they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And he rose and he rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. See, in the story in 14, he gets in the boat and the storm just stops. He doesn't say anything to it. It doesn't speak to the storm. It, the same end result happens, but he's not commanding. Yet it, somehow that happens. And the men marveled, saying, now listen to this compared to their response in Matthew 14. What sort of man is this that even the wind 
and the seas obey him. They're like, who is this guy? Who is this? That he can even command the wind and the waves. Their ultimate response in 14 is very different. And we'll come back to that. But people responded to Jesus through the New Testament in all kinds of different ways. And that's true today too, isn't it? Listen, here's some of the responses that he got. The people of the area of Genesaret, after he cast the demon out of the, the, the demoniac into the pigs and they all rushed into the sea, they, they asked Jesus to leave. His hometown rejected him. The, the leaders were confounded, angered, and silenced by him. The sick were, were desperate for him and grateful for the healing they received. And in fact, he told them to go and not say anything, and they couldn't help but spread the word. Sinners rejoiced in him when they were forgiven. The crowds were amazed by him. They celebrated him, and then they shouted for his crucifixion. They were fickle. Now, we wouldn't be fickle about Jesus, would we? Mm. Prominent men were indignant when he was anointed with perfume. They said it could have been sold and given to the poor, but the truth is they were greedy. The Romans condemned and killed him, and then the disciples ultimately, in this story, worshiped him as the true Son of God. So in Matthew 8, it's like, who is this guy? And by the time we get to Matthew 14, uh, truly, you're the Son of God. This is the first acknowledgement by the disciples of his true identity. Now, in the end, we know that, that love will prevail, that Jesus will prevail, that his, his command not to fear is based on who he is. Our ethics and our morality derive from our understanding of the character of our God. And that is the central issue in our response to circumstances of life. He says, don't fear because, well, he doesn't say, hey, don't worry. I'm not a ghost. I'm not gonna hurt you. You're not gonna drown. Uh, no, what does he say? It is I. Take courage. Take heart. Don't be afraid. Now, the two Greek words used there are the same two words that Jesus uses in the account in John, where is it? John chapter 8, where the religious leaders are arguing that we're descendants of Abraham. And ultimately, in the end, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. You remember that? And so that points back to Exodus 3 when Moses asked, who should I say sent me? And God tells him, tell them I am sent you. So the Greek equivalent is I me ego. I me is, is I am or it is. It is the verb to be. And ego is I or me. Now there's two ways to interpret the, the Greek in this response to Jesus telling the disciples, hey, don't, don't be afraid, take courage, it's me. There's also this implication of his identity as the, the I am. Now, I'm no Greek scholar. The, uh, the order of the two words is different in this account in Matthew than it is when he claims the I am in John, where they recognize the blasphemy and they just can't stand it and they try to throw him off the cliff and he passes through them because it wasn't yet his time. The implication here is either way, it doesn't matter. It's, it's the reason you shouldn't fear is because of who I am am. That, that's what Jesus says. My intentions for you are good. I, I love you. I'm here to save you. The Bible is filled with commands not to fear. 
to take courage, to be of good cheer, to take heart in response to who God is. Now, there are a number of, here's, here's just a few examples. In Genesis 15, God tells Abram, don't fear, I'm going to make you a great nation. His, his, God's plan was going to unfold. He had his moments of doubt. He went down a path that has ended up with, uh, you know, 4,000 years of Arab-Israeli conflict, but, uh, you know, decisions have consequences. In Exodus 14, Moses tells Israel on behalf of God that God will deliver them before they cross the Red Sea. Do not fear. Watch the salvation of the Lord. In Luke 1, Gabriel tells Mary, do not fear. The child will be conceived of the Holy Spirit. He calms her. In Matthew 1, the angel tells Joseph, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. God's involved in the story. In Luke 2, the angels tell the shepherds in the fields, don't be afraid. They, they were terrified when the angels appeared. Now, we stood, a group of about 20 of us, three weeks ago on that hill across from Bethlehem where the angels would have been. And I picture this green, beautiful, grassy hill. It's utterly not like that at all. There are boulders buried in the, in the hillside. It's very rocky and arid, and it's not at all what you picture in the Christmas cards. Those are wrong. But the angels tell them, hey, don't be afraid. I have good news of great joy. And then the announcement about Jesus' birth. Jesus said to the woman with the issue of blood who had just grabbed his, his, the, 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 end of the hem of his garment and was healed, not to be afraid. He says the same thing in Matthew 9 to a paralytic whose sins are forgiven. Don't be afraid. Take courage. Jesus tells the disciples in Matthew chapter 10, don't fear those who can kill the body. You're of so much more value to the father than a sparrow. And he knows when every sparrow falls, every hair on your head is numbered. Don't be afraid. Fear the one who can kill your soul afterwards, right? Fear God. Don't fear people and what they can do to you. How many of us are afraid of what people think in an unhealthy way? The angel said to the women at the tomb who were much afraid not to fear. Jesus is risen. Go and tell his disciples. We were at the entrance of a tomb in a garden in Jerusalem. I don't know if that was the tomb where Jesus was laid, but it was like the one he would have been laid in. It's amazing to think about that moment. And the Lord told Paul when he was before the council in Jerusalem, don't worry, you're not going to die yet. You have to testify in Rome. And likewise, when the shipwreck was about to occur, he said, don't worry, an angel stood next to Paul and said, not you or anyone on this ship is going to perish. You have to testify of Jesus before Caesar. And in Revelation 1, John fell down as though dead in fear before the risen Savior. Now, John had spent time with Jesus and was much loved by him. And yet there was something about the risen Savior that struck him dead with fear. And Jesus says to him, fear not, I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. Don't fear, understand who I am. And in knowing who I am, the fear is dispelled. The Bible says perfect love casts out fear. Do you find yourself being anxious about the circumstances of life? Yeah, I see some knowing looks and laughter going on. Yeah, I think so. 
We, we fear things. I mean, I, I have four grandchildren. I, I will occasionally think, wow, what, what would happen if we lost one of our, our grandkids? And then I just realize it's God's perfect love is sovereign over all. And fear should have no place in my life. Imagining hypothetical circumstances that serves no good purpose in the life of a believer. We're not to imagine those things and give in to those, those fears. And the way we do it is to remember who God is. The command not to fear is based on God's character from which his intentions for us flow. We bear in mind who he is and we worship him in truth. He puts the Holy Spirit in us as a seal, as a deposit, as a comforter, as a sign of his love for us. Here's what it actually says in 1 John chapter 4. This is verse 16 through 19. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected or matured in love. We love because he first loved us. So much of the Christian life comes down to, to love. To loving one another in spite of our many flaws, in spite of our many weaknesses, in spite of our unattractive moments at times, we don't love each other because, like, you know, I don't expect you to love me because I deserve it, because frankly, I don't deserve it. I don't. I think about my life before and even after Jesus a lot of times when I came to faith, and for some reason, my misbehavior and shortcomings seem very amplified inside me as compared to anything that I could do on my own that's good. But then I know that Jesus is good, and, and he... He lives in me. And the reason when the judgment comes that that won't be a storm that I can't survive is that he will bear me up. I'm standing in a place where the earthquake isn't going to knock me off my feet. The storm isn't going to swamp my boat. I'm not going to be drowned and undone because I'm standing on the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Not of my own merit, because of what he's done and because for whatever reason he enabled me to believe in him for whatever reason he chose me and he enabled me to have faith and to believe he changed the way I see life I mean I just when I came to faith I could not see life the same way I could not understand it the same way the depth of purpose and meaning and joy was utterly different Amen? He's so good all the time, right? God is good all the time. He really is. God is unfolding his plan. 
We see it all through scripture. We see it through, if you've never read church history, I encourage you, get a book called Church History in Plain Language. And it'll take you from the apostles up through, I guess, about the 1980s or 90s. It's amazing to see the sweep of history in light of the church and what God has done through the centuries. Jesus is purposeful and he's never, he's never rushed. He sees what's going to happen. He knows. But do you? I don't mean storms of life. I mean that Jesus is coming. He's coming back for his bride. He's coming back for those of us who follow him and who know him and have faith in him. And that's something we should pray for. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. We want you to come back. You know, Brady talked about not watching the news. And I get it, man. It just makes me tired. Does it not just make you tired? There's so much evil in the world. I don't know that we were ever meant to know as much as we know now. I mean, think about this. You know, I, we, we sometimes struggle with, with what responsibility we have based on what we know. Well, until the last couple of generations, for the history of the world, news traveled very slowly. There wasn't this global 24-7 awareness of everything that ever happens. And understand too, we get a subset, a tiny subset of everything happening in the world. And, and it's always the spectacular and the bad. And I don't know about you, it just, it wears me down. I'm ready for Jesus to come. Here's how I like to say it. I, I do, I love my life. I love my life and I'll be glad when it's over. Because part of me is tired, but part of me is very hopeful. Part of me longs to be with Jesus so that I am finally and ultimately like him. And this flesh that I still struggle with will be healed completely. That's the promise. We will be resurrected. And when we see him face to face, we'll be like him. No more sin in our relationships. That's an awesome thing to contemplate. I'm sinful, so I can't fully imagine it. Because ultimately when I try to imagine it, my sin creeps in and clobbers me. But I know it's going to be amazing. So we have a great hope in Jesus. And my question is, how are you responding to him now? How will you respond to him today? Some things demand a response. And more than anything, Jesus demands a response. Let's pray. Father, if we're honestly reading the Bible and taking you at your word and for who you are, we really only have two choices, to fall down at your feet and worship or to completely reject Christianity as anything valid. But to walk a middle ground and to say Jesus is a good example, he's a nice man, he was a prophet, he was a teacher, is just intellectually dishonest. Help us all in this room this morning to fall on the side of worshiping you, falling at your feet, and acknowledging that Jesus is the true Son of God. Help us to love you and to be obedient to you and to choose to respond in a way that honors you. And may we live and love and laugh and pray in your name. Amen. Amen.
I don't get to say it a lot, but hey, I do, I do love you guys. You know Jim loves you. I mean, there's no, there's no denying that, right? So keep that in prayer. If this is something that has sparked questions in your mind or a conviction, there are always people around afterwards who would love to have a conversation about that. You're dismissed.